0: Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. So today we're going to wrap up our podcast episodes for this year's testing cycle with some foot and ankle fractures. We felt like this was an area that wasn't covered too in-depth, and I think you will probably see some of this information again. Um, So, most of this information that we're going to go over is being pulled from the current concepts book starting on page 65. Um, Foot and ankle fractures account for about 24% of all fractures, the most common fracture type being an ankle fracture, which is about 9% of all fractures. Um, Systematic review um, notes that six months after ankle fracture, patients continue Patients will experience about 80% recovery. Patients of older age and male gender are going to show a worse outcome. Uh, that's, they didn't really detail that in terms of what they mean by worse outcome. Um, my inkling is that it's probably more limited range of motion, more difficulty getting strength back, that kind of thing. Surgical fixation showed a non-significant trend of 10 points more activity limitation compared to non-surgically treated patients. However, at an average of two years post fracture, there was very little continued improvement compared to the status at six months post fracture. So, at two years post fracture, they suggest this systematic review suggests about an 86% recovery. So, it's not uncommon for some of these patients after these um, foot and ankle fractures to experience anywhere from a 10 to 20% continued limitation. Another two-year follow-up of bimalleolar and trimalleolar fractures showed that return to sports play occurred in only 27.3% of patients and 18% could not play sports at all. Um, I, you know, I think sometimes it's that these patients remain somewhat symptomatic, you know, the stiffness, the aching, that kind of symptoms. Um, Common chronic symptoms include the low-grade pain, swelling, and that stiffness current best evidence suggests that long-term, approximately 20% of individuals will develop ankle osteoarthritis, a much higher rate comparable to not than non-injured individuals. Again, if you're seeing someone with a lot of ankle pain and they have a history of a fracture, you should probably be a little bit suspicious of that ankle osteoarthritis setting in, given their age, time since injury, that kind of thing. Um, They go into a lot of detail about the different um, staging of these fractures and the different classification systems they use for this. I'm not sure that's the most helpful information to go through in this podcast episode. I'm gonna touch on it, but if you want to read more about it, that's on page 66 to 67. Essentially the classification system that they go over the most in depth is the Weber classification system. And that's divided up into Weber A, B, and fracture type. The injury for a Weber type A includes an avulsion of the lateral malleoli, a less common oblique fracture of the medial malleoli. This is often non-surgical in um, healing, and the weight-bearing after immobilization um, is a little bit more delayed. So they're going to be immobilized for a while given that non-surgical management, and the weight-bearing will come after that once the fracture is deemed stable. A Weber type B injury involves a rupture of the syndesmosis, which is the distal tibiofibial joint, It often involves an oblique fracture of the fibula, a fracture of the malleolus tertius, and the avulsion of the medial malleoli. Then a surgical managed case with a removable castor splint to kind of check on healing and make sure that um, it's going as anticipated. The rehabilitation in these cases is generally early weight bearing and motion, um, early motion because of the internal fixation that occurs. A Weber type C is an avulsion of the medial malleoli a rupture of the anterior syndesmosis, a fibula fracture above the tibial plafond, avulsion of the medial, of the malleolus tertius. So clearly that's more involved. You're talking about both um, significant medial and lateral involvement there. Um, There's going to be, again, surgical management with a removable castor splint. And again, you're going to see more of that early weight bearing and early motion because of the internal fixation. Just because someone, some of these cases are early mobilization and early motion cases, cases, I would say in my experience, you know, you can chime in here too, Alexis, that these folks don't always tolerate a lot of aggressive weight-bearing emotion. It kind of depends how well they've healed, kind of depends the extent of the soft tissue involvement. You know, keep in mind what we're talking about now are fractures, and I'm not going to touch on all of the soft tissue involvements, but note that in the ankle, I don't think it's a surprise to any of us that the soft tissue involvement can be very significant. Do you generally see that, Alexis, even in your early weight-bearing, early motion cases, at the ankle that they don't really tolerate a whole lot right away. Yeah, it's definitely slow in the very beginning for sure. And, you know, obviously there's some patients um, that might have other complications following um, an injury like this, where they've ended up with back pain, hip pain, that sort of thing. Um, So all things to take into consideration, but yeah, definitely uh, not, not great at tolerating much early on. So we're going to move on. Um, Like I said, if you want more information about that, you can refer to the current concepts. Um, They suggest that the status of inversion and eversion after ankle fractures and the foot intrinsic muscle strength following the immobilization is important to document and address in your rehab plan of care. Um, They suggest doing all strength measurements, but specifically that um, inversion and eversion is often missed, um, and it can really help. It can be a more tolerable starting point. Than some weight bearing stuff. So just make note of that. It's mentioned in here. Studies also document poor single limb balance using force platforms at approximately one year after an ankle fracture. Um, there's worse balance in ankle fracture patients. They have decreased walking velocity, side to side symmetry um, of the spatial temporal measures. So, you know, their step time, their stance time, those sorts of gait measures. Um, and a six minute walk test was lower in all patients immediately following the immobilization period for ankle fractures. So just make sure you're doing comprehensive eval, obviously looking at range of motion, strength, swelling, but also looking more at, you know, the quality of their movement, the quality of their gait, that sort of a thing. So moving more into the treatments of ankle fractures, the length, type, and role of rehabilitation during the initial immobilization period can vary considerably. Recent systematic reviews note that early weight-bearing post-ankle fractures have a questionable questionable benefit and early immobilization is associated with a decreased risk of DVTs. However, there is a small increased risk of wound infections and fracture um, fixation failure in these fracture patients. Um, So I think that if when a surgeon's deciding early mobilization versus prolonged immobilization, um, They really have to take into account some of the patient's individual characteristics that they bring to the table. You know, how well do they heal? Do they have other risk factors for a DVT that they really need to be in the early mobilization category? Um, You know, I don't know that there's a hard and fast way that they're going to determine that for the patient, but the research on it is variable. Um, The... Benefits following early immobilization, like I said, active exercise accelerate return to work and daily activities compared to the immobilization. And early weight bearing tends to accelerate return to work and daily activities. So I think that's something to just be mindful of, you know, if uh, someone's got a really heavy job and they're doing healing well and stuff, the surgeon's probably going to push them along a little bit quicker um, or the physician just to get them moving and back to work more successfully. So early weight-bearing protocol is going to include a controlled ankle movement walker, which is also known as a cam walker or those tall boots for four weeks. They're going to be allowed to remove the boot for wound care and hygiene, and then they're going to wean them out of the boot by week week six. Generally, patients have the option of wearing an ankle stirrup brace or an ankle lace-up brace, that four- to six-week mark, to help with the transition. And there was no significant mention of rehabilitation in that phase. Um, in general, the use of internal fixation is going to result in a shorter period of immobilization. Um, however, you're also going to see some cases where mobilization in a short leg cast is common. And I think that's more so to help with the symptom management and get them into a little bit more weight bearing. You know, sometimes going from um, surgery to early mobilization and weight bearing, sometimes that's where that tolerance comes in. So if we can put them in a cam walker or some kind of stirrup brace to help with that transition, it's going to be a more favorable outcome. Um, Typically, rehabilitation programs starting at the time of cast removal or full weight-bearing include a range of stretching, strengthening, aerobic, balance, and functional activities. Some studies suggest a frequency of up to three times a week for about 10 weeks. Um, I would say that's probably generally what I see my patients for. I don't usually see them three times a week, but initially the first month at least to gain range of motion and flexibility of the joint, I will see them twice a week. But I'd say most of these patients are in therapy around anywhere from eight to 12 weeks. Do you typically see them about that long, Alexis? I'm not sure how many fractures you're seeing now, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't see them as often now, but in the past, um, yes. Okay. Um, They do mention in the current concepts that patients who participated in that specific program that I just mentioned, um, experienced nearly equivalent LEFS scores after 10 weeks and were able to perform more than 10 single leg heel raises on the involved side. I'd say that's pretty significant in only 10 weeks. Um, These patients also started with a higher functional status. And so keep that in mind. But they mention in here table 36, and that's on page 69. And that goes over some very specific strategies and milestones for mobilization, passive stretching, progression to strengthening, ambulation training, balance activities, resistance training, and functional training. So, if you're not seeing a lot of these patients, I would definitely refer to that because it's going to give you some kind of tips on post rehabilitation or post fracture for rehabilitation guidelines. They note that in here, like we've talked about, although prognosis appears good for many ankle fracture patients, the subgroups of patients after an ankle fracture may experience lower functional levels. The long-term outcomes following ankle fracture suggest most patients return to prior level of function. However, Patients with osteoporosis, integumentary system deficits, peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, and elderly-related comorbidities can influence the outcome negatively. So I think it depends what the source of the fracture is. If you have an older adult who had a fall and is also osteoporotic and has diabetes and, you know, poor skin integrity, their recovery is obviously going to be far more impaired than a college athlete with an ankle fracture that's more traumatic in nature. So, that kind of covers ankle fractures. Um, There's some other kinds of fractures that they go through in current concepts that I think are important to touch on. The first one being metatarsal fractures. Metatarsal fractures are going to account for about 2% of all foot and ankle fractures. And given the high forces required to fracture the largest metatarsal, fractures of the first metatarsal are rare compared to two through five. So, their cause is going to be possibly due to trauma, excessive rotation, or repeat of stresses. Um, And most often, the diagnosis is through x-ray or plain film radiographs. They're often treated with immobilization if it's not displaced. Otherwise, an internal fixation procedure may be required. The majority of metatarsal fractures are non-displaced. It's important to note that fractures of the fifth fifth metatarsal base may occur as a result of an avulsion or repetitive stress injury. Um, And that's also known as a Jones fracture, so specific name there. The fibularis brevis attaches to the proximal aspect of the fifth metatarsal, and any kind of twisting injury that result in strong contraction of that muscle may evolve the um, proximal aspect of the tuberosity from the fifth metatarsal. So those fractures, specifically fifth metatarsal fractures, are going to heal within six to eight weeks with immobilization. Um, and they're going, again, like I said, recur because of overload. The fractures... Um, specifically fifth metatarsal fractures, have a propensity to not heal, resulting in nonunion. Therefore, um, they suggest patients that present with a non-traumatic onset of pain over the fifth metatarsal be evaluated further, perhaps with more than just a plain film radiograph, because it may be more of a stress fracture or an avulsion fracture that wasn't clear at first. Um, Calcaneal fractures make up a smaller proportion of foot and ankle fractures, However, their management's often much more difficult. 10% of all foot and ankle fractures are associated with the calcaneus. So these are, um, I've seen this too in clinical practice, they're much harder to diagnose. They often require a CT scan because of the complexity. Sometimes it's because of what angle it's fractured at. Sometimes, you know, they often don't show up on plain foam radiographs. And they usually occur with a mechanism mechanism of injury of a fall from a significant height or a motor vehicle accident. Um, The cases I've seen of this have only been in, like, industrial accidents, you know, jumping off of scaffolding. I had a guy do it. You know, a healthy guy just jumped off scaffolding and landed awkwardly. Um, I had a guy fall off a ladder. They They also suggest motor vehicle accident. I think it probably depends how the foot's positioned, if there was any bracing, and what kind of axial load goes through the distal end of the extremity. Um, the resulting fractures are comminuted fractures with or without displacement, which may involve the subtalar joint. It's important to note in these fractures whether or not the subtalar joint's involved because that can significantly impact their recovery and their rehabilitation and what kind of things you need to do as the therapist. Most frequently, these fractures are going to be oblique, and it's going to separate the calcaneus into both medial and lateral fragments. Given the complexity, um, achieving anatomical alignment for healing can be really difficult, depending on the case. And the assessment for rehabilitation should include the pain assessment, range of motion, strength, function, gait, and a patient-reported outcome. Um, these patients, based on research, are going to report a normal, um, less than normal score on all domains of the SF 36 pre- and postoperatively. So these can be really hard fractures to come back from. I think some of it too is because these most often happen in fairly healthy or active people just based on the mechanism um, and they have high demands to get back to. So, treating calcaneal fractures, there's a lot of debate about the best approach to do this. The controversies, controversies center around whether internal fixation or non operative care is best. The reason is because not. Um, Operative care for these have very high complication rates, such as wound healing issues, non-unions, pain, and subsequent fusions. And so most surgeons or physicians try to do a um, non-operative care. However, that involves a lot of compliance from the patient, just given the amount of weight-bearing that ha- would have to go through that joint, you know, maintaining non-weight-bearing over a long period of time. Um. Typically they're only doing ORIFs for fractures with a displacement greater than one millimeter or if there's a significant malalignment like greater than 10 degrees of valgus or greater than five degrees of varus force when you're examining them clinically. I don't know that that's super important to notice. I hope you're not seeing a lot of acute calcaneal fractures in the clinic that haven't been examined, but I guess it's always possible. Um, The rehabilitation program for these patients can be adapted basically from an ankle fracture um, case. So they recommend looking over table 21 and 22 if you're unfamiliar with that. But the key difference is the emphasis on restoring the subtalar joint mobility, which is why I mentioned that it depends where the fracture is and whether or not their subtalar joint is involved. If non-operative treatment is um, pursued, range of motion can generally start early they say day seven post-fracture to preserve that subtalar joint mobility. If it starts much later than that, sometimes getting that subtalar mobility back can be extremely difficult. Patients, though, are still non-weight-bearing for six to eight weeks, which is what I, you know, what I was just mentioning or referencing. Getting patients to be really compliant with that for that long can be tough. And then they're going to be gradually transitioned back to weight-bearing. In my experience, pain is a limiting factor in getting back to full weight-bearing for these folks. Um, You know, they generally have a lot of persistent heel pain, that kind of a thing. But it's really important to note that um, achieving that full subtalar mobility and range of motion is really important for their function. The next one we're going to go over is stress fractures. Stress fractures are most often going to occur in individuals who are exposed to repetitive stress, usually as a result of training. Most stress fractures are going to occur in the cortical bone. And that's because bone remodeling of cortical bone is slower than calcaneous bone. So when training loads are induced faster than the bone can remodel, that's what leads to a weakened area. And if the training continues and that repeated stress and load happens without the bone being able to modify itself is when a fracture is going to occur. Runners and military recruits, um, both groups who often are guilty of rapidly increased training schedules, are known to experience stress fractures at an increased rate than other populations. Stress fractures, you may also see them in individuals that are not training but due to impaired bone remodeling or low bone mineral density, so more of a pathologic process, um, you know, an osteoporosis, osteopenia, you may see it in patients with a female athlete triad, and those are more so termed insufficiency fractures. They don't, their bone doesn't have enough resources to remodel itself. So the extrinsic factors that they suggest for an increased risk of stress fracture include um, frequency and duration and intensity of the training. Increasing training too quickly is the primary risk factor. The jury is kind of out on whether running style is a predisposing factor, and there's no specific recommendations to alter the running style based on that. Increased rate of loading at initial contact in running has also been proposed as a predisposing factor for stress fractures, and shoes are known to influence the loading rate. So it's recommended, you know, if you have a patient that's running a lot, you need to just make sure that they're replacing their shoes after every three to 500 miles. Intrinsic factors, so the one that are more inherent to the patient, include a smaller calf girth and less muscle mass of the limb in, lower limb in females, and that's probably associated with mus- less muscle force to control the impact and absorb shock. Running style, again, may also predispose them, but it, it, there's not enough research to suggest altering running style for that. Running with excessive hip adduction and rear foot eversion are associated with tibial stress fractures. So if you're seeing someone that's running a lot, training a lot, and that you're seeing some of these gait issues, I think it's important to note. I think the jury's still out on how much gait and running mechanics we should correct. Um, you know, I think it probably just depends how, much you're, how many runners you're seeing. Oftentimes, from what the research says, they need to rest more so first before their running mechanics are adjusted So the subjective evaluation is really critical in these cases for stress fractures. Um, Athletes or others with a history of a sharp increase in lower extremity load um, or walking on hard surfaces, so like military recruits, are at a higher risk. So if they're mentioning that kind of activity, that should kind of pique your interest to ask more about that. These patients are also going to present with pain a specific distance into their run or walk or frequency of routine. If the athlete persists in training, the pain is probably going to occur at shorter distances and or rest. So, you know, sometimes these patients, if it's not a severe stress fracture yet, they'll only have pain after they run a certain distance. If that progresses, they're going to have pain with everyday walking. So if that's part of your subjective report and they're coming to see you months after the fact, certainly be have a heightened awareness of that. They're also gonna have focal point tenderness along the bone at the site of the fracture. So different locations of stress fractures are associated with specific activities. Um, Navicular stress fractures are more common in sprinters, hurdlers, and middle distance runners, whereas tibial stress fractures are more common in distance runners and military recruits. Common sites of stress fractures in the foot and ankle include anterior tibia, medial malleolus, navicular, proximal fifth metatarsal, the sesamoid bones and the metatarsal shafts. MRI is most frequently the imaging, preferred imaging to diagnose stress fractures. Again, these are one that don't always show up on um, a plain film radiograph. So if someone's only had plain film radiographs and you're getting some of these findings um, and their subjective history is lining up, you may need to refer them back um, and for more advanced imaging. It kind of depends what the referral source was. So the primary aim of treatment for stress fractures is to reestablish the normal bone integrity. And a key to the initial treatment is stopping the overtraining or excessive activity that's causing the bone to break down. So non-surgical treatment, um, may include rest and wearing a pneumatic walking boot with return to athletics at eight months. So sometimes these fractures can take a really, really long time because you're trying to change inherently what's happening at the bone, um, and how the body's managing that. Um, sometimes I think that's the hardest part in managing these cases is getting people to truly rest it enough or rest it long enough. You know, sometimes they're like, okay, well I rested two or three weeks and they want it to be good enough to just go back to that. And it just takes a lot of patient education to enlighten them as to how many months it's truly going to take the authors of the current concepts. And this makes sense suggest that, you know, you really, where our role can come in is to help them find some other activity such as water running, biking, You know, in some cases, an elliptical that can help maintain their level of fitness. I think sometimes these patients, the reason they get into overtraining is they almost become obsessive about one activity, um, depending on the case. And so sometimes asking them to give something up for that long of a period of time causes some stress and anxiety. So if you can work with them to find a different activity that still they can feel like they're maintaining their fitness can be really helpful. And then it's important to note that navicular stress fractures are considered a high risk for complications, and that's um, these patients are usually going to be a non-weight-bearing until the fracture is healed. So sometimes regular, you know, other stress fractures, they'll let them be weight-bearing in a pneumatic boot as tolerated, but a navicular stress fracture, probably going to be non-weight-bearing until it's fully healed. So that kind of covers the fracture section. There's definitely a few important ones there. I will say in current concepts, like I mentioned, there's some really helpful tables, specifically table 36. I kind of went over table 34 with you to go over the Weber classifications. Um, Do you have anything to add, Alexis, on types of fractures, management, rehab indications, anything like that? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, You know, and like Alexis said in our last episode, you know, This is going to be our last episode for now. We just don't want to put out new content the week before some of you start testing. Um, But certainly, you know, we're available. We're around. If you have questions leading up to your test, please feel free to reach out. Ask them. You know, we're certainly happy to give our opinion or any guidance. Um, Other than that, I hope everyone's studying continues to go well. Good luck to those of you that are going to be testing in the next couple weeks. Do you have anything else, Alexis? I don't think so. Good luck to everybody. And as Amanda said, just let us know if there's any way we can help. Thank you. All right. Thanks.